Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Pushkin. This is a story about a young woman who ran away from home. At least, that's how it all started. I think people think that I had this master plan and I went out and did it. And like, you know, like it's not fun, right? You're constantly scared. You have no support. You have no one to talk to, which is part of the reason it got so carried away. Like if I had just talked to somebody, they would have been like, this is crazy. Along the way, there were plenty of moments where she could have stopped running. But she didn't. Sort of like I got on a train track um, that was clearly the wrong train track. And like my train is running away. And at some point, you're not thinking, crap, how do I get off this train track? You're just thinking, crap, how do I stop this train from like going off the rails? You know, I just kept making horrible decision after horrible decision after horrible decision just trying to keep the train from crashing and killing me at that point. We're going to come back to this woman and go deep into her story. So you'll hear more about all that. But not just yet, because this is actually a story about not one, but two young women who vanished at about the same time. 
The two of them were roughly the same age, but in so many other ways, they could not have been more different. One grew up in rural Montana, where she was raised in a sheltered, devoutly religious home. She was shy and kind of a nerd. The other was a kind-hearted free spirit from South Carolina. She partied often and sometimes hung out with a rough crowd. They both disappeared in 1999. Their families searched for them, but didn't find many clues. And then, improbably, their stories collided when a lone investigator got involved and quickly became obsessed. I think of a, a situation as a sweater. So sometimes you have a loose thread, and you pull the thread and you get a knot. And sometimes you pull a thread and it just keeps unraveling, <laughs> and you just keep pulling and pulling and pulling. This investigator was convinced that the fates of these two young women, the free spirit and the nerd, were linked. And that by solving one of their cases, he might also solve the other. Not just that, he suspected that one of them was a master of deception, a highly trained chameleon who conned her way into the Ivy Leagues. He began an investigation that ultimately drew in the Secret Service, the U.S. Marshals, and the Justice Department. The media soon got wind of this. Allegations of murder, fraud, and espionage swirled. Eventually, a nationwide manhunt got underway. All because of this one investigator and his hunch. Now, given the gigantic scope of all this, you might think that our investigator worked for some big city police department, or a fancy federal agency, or maybe even an international outfit like Interpol. Nope. He was a small-town cop who'd just become a detective. He didn't have a partner or, for a while, even a computer. But he was doggedly stubborn, almost perversely so. I just pulled a thread, and it just kept going and going and going till the whole thing unraveled. I get it. I love pulling on threads. As a journalist, I've done this so many times, pulled and pulled until I've lost track of what I was originally looking for or whether it was worth it. And sometimes, most of the time, in fact, it's not. But every once in a while, there's a set of facts that's so irresistibly curious that I just can't let go. And I suppose it doesn't matter whether you're a journalist or a detective or just a nosy neighbor. So many of us believe that great mysteries lurk in the periphery of our lives. So when we find an especially curious thread, we keep pulling because we won't be satisfied until we've unraveled it all. I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, Season 3, Never Seen Again. Episode 1, The Dark Corner. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. 
This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. The detective that I told you about, his name is John Campbell. And he's just about the friendliest guy I've ever met. He has wispy brown hair and a boyish grin. He wears a pair of those wraparound sunglasses that dads always wear at Little League practice. He's also got this goofy and totally lovable laugh that he breaks into all the time. So, not an old-timey lawman. In fact, one of the first things that he tells me is that he doesn't care for guns. When I retire, I can't wait to put this in a drawer. I mean, this is, this is a... Uh... It's the thing I bang my elbow on all the time. <laughs> so it's not about carrying a gun. I carry a gun because we have to. I'd rather be like Andy Griffith and just be sheriff without a gun. I met John down in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, where he lives. This, by the way, was also the hometown of the free-spirited young woman that I told you about, one of the two that went missing. Back in the early 2000s, when our story really starts, John was the town's lone detective. I asked him what this was like. He told me that back then, this was truly a sleepy backwater. 
Travelers Rest was almost a dry town. We had one bar and one liquor store. And the liquor store closed, I think, at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. The bar closed at midnight, and we rolled up the streets. And the only problems we ever had was at the bar. <laughs> and so we shut the bar down two or three times, took their license. Outside of town? Well, that was a different story. The thickly wooded slopes quickly rose into the peaks of the Blue Ridge Mountains. The land was steep and craggy. Some called it the Dark Corner. For generations, it was known as a place where mountain folk brewed moonshine and lived by their own rules, mountain justice. By the 1990s, that had begun to change. Newcomers were arriving, retirees and the like. But the Dark Corner remained a place where it wasn't wise to venture at night or turn down a road you didn't know. I talked to one local who told me he once found a great big log blocking the road with a stack of dog skulls on it. And then he just knew, better turn around. John says that occasionally the mountain folks would just show up at John's office. You'd hear this roar of a truck would come in and people would pile out and they'd say, we're looking for the law, you know, and mountain justice had failed and they had to come to into town to find, <laughs> find some law enforcement. For the police and travelers rest, the key was basically to secure the town's perimeter. So I called Travelers Rest the circle of wagons. So we had seven square miles that was like a circle of wagons in our little town, and we kept all the crime out of our little circle <laughs> out into the county, pushed it out. Wait, so your job was basically just like make sure that the criminals stayed out of the circle? Yeah, pretty much. Did you ever like like tell guys like not in here? You're on yeah. the Oh, yeah. What did you say this to them? This is our town. You Out. <laughs> Take that up the mountains. John says this strategy, it worked. Not much happened in the way of major crime in Traveler's Rest. But then, one day, something rather sinister happened in this small town. Something that broke the humdrum rhythm of daily life. A 20-year-old girl went missing. Her name was Brooke Henson. She vanished from within the town's limits, inside the circle of wagons. And her disappearance would ultimately send John Campbell on an epic quest. It would become a huge case, a national case. And John, the small-town detective who hated carrying a gun, would be at the center of it all. The day before Brooke Henson went missing, John Campbell says he saw her on the street totally by chance. It was July of 1999. John wasn't a detective at the time. He was still just a patrolman, making the rounds. He remembers that day crisply, and he recounted it to me while we were driving around town together in his truck. When I saw Brooke, uh, she was walking down this street here, close to her house, and she turned around and looked at me. Right about right here is where I saw her. And so that's her house, where that sign is. That's her driveway. The street that we're on, where Brooke used to live, is shrouded in thick, tangled vegetation. The woods thrum with the buzz of cicadas. We pull up to Brooke's old house. This is the front of the house. As you, you, can, you can't see it. I mean, it's completely overgrown. 
Was it always this overgrown? This the front was was grown up, but it was no. You could see the house and everything, but you can't even tell there's a house in there. Yeah, I mean it looks like uh, like Boo Radley's house from To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, it's, it's almost abandoned looking now. John didn't really know Brooke, but other people who did described her to me as easygoing, kind, free spirited. She shopped at thrift stores, wore Doc Martens and flannels. She was a huge fan of Nirvana. She dropped out of high school, and in the summer of 1999, she was still living at home with her parents. Now, I've gone through a bunch of accounts of what happened the night she went missing, including the original police report, which was basically a statement from Brooke's mom. But there's not a whole lot that we know for sure. What we do know is that she disappeared early on the morning of July 4th. There had been a party at Brooke's house that night. Her boyfriend, a guy named Ricky Sean Shirley, was there. And apparently, the two of them were fighting. According to the police report, at 2.43 a.m., Brooke told her mother, quote, I'm getting out of here. Her mom told her it was too late to wander about. Brooke replied, quote, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just seeing what he'll do. I'm messing with Sean. Brooke then left the house. She set off into the night. She never came home. In the morning, Brooke's mother found a note on her bed. It was intended for Sean, her boyfriend. It read, I'm walking. Follow me if you care. The million-dollar question, of course, is this. Where did she go? And there are a lot of theories about this, but the theory that I heard most was that she was headed to a nearby store. Apparently, Brooke went there from time to time to get cigarettes. This is the store where she was headed, by the way. The store right here behind us. This gas station? Yeah, to get cigarettes. Like, why would she go to the store? She would have known the store was closed. Because it was like 2.30 in the morning, yeah. so it was like, Yeah, that store was not open at that time. Well, she would have known the store was closed. Also, I mean, those roads, it's, it's dark here at night. Yeah, and especially back then, it, there, we rolled the streets up at 9 o'clock in Travelers Rest. I mean, there was nothing going on at night in this town. The whole thing was more than a little mystifying. How does a young woman vanish off a small town street in the dead of night, en route to a store that's not even open? Even the note that she left was enigmatic. Follow me if you care. Brooke's parents are both deceased now, so I couldn't talk with them. Instead, I had to rely on what few clues I could glean. Brooke's mom did file a report with the police the day after she went missing. But at first, the police didn't do much. Seems like no one did. A few missing posters went up. That's about it. No one was sounding any alarms. I spoke with Brooke's cousin, Holly Henson, about what she remembers from this time. I was staying at a friend's house in Marietta, just above Traveler's Rest, and her mom took us to the gas station. And I saw a missing poster with Brooke's picture and name on it. So I told my dad. And Brooke's family had never told us that she was missing. 
but she had just went missing. Kind of odd, right? This is how she learns about her cousin's disappearance. But Cousin Holly says that her family and Brooks had kind of grown apart in the years leading up to her disappearance. Holly's mother told me that she disapproved of Brooks' parents, of the way that they raised their children, allowing them to drink and party and come and go as they pleased, like there were no rules. She did not want that for her own kids. But when they learned that Brooke had gone missing, they rushed over. Everyone went. Cousin Holly, her sister Patty, their mom. They wanted to show solidarity, to help if they could. When they showed up, the scene at Brooke's house was somber. We were just all sitting in the living room, and it was just, the whole thing was just weird. It was quiet. Nobody was really saying anything. That's Brooke's other cousin, Patty. She and Holly both remember the silence. Some of Brooke's friends were present, sitting there mutely. Brooke's mother was on the sofa, just crying. From the way they describe it, it was like a vigil for someone who died. The odd part was that Brooke had just gone missing. It wasn't all that unusual for Brooke to just go off and disappear for a few days, visiting friends or whatever. Here's Cousin Holly again. Brooke was allowed to come and go as she pleased. She could be gone for two or three days. And, you know, there wasn't cell phones back then. And her parents wouldn't really know where she was. But when Brooke went missing, her mama was very, very upset as if she knew Brooke wasn't coming home. The whole gathering at the Henson house left a chilling impression on Holly and Patty's mother, Marianne Henson, she was Brooke's aunt. It was very eerie. It was, it was something I don't want to ever experience again. According to Aunt Mary Ann, the only person who seemed to be doing much of anything was this one guy that someone had invited. He was walking through the house, going through Brooke's possessions. Whoever got him, I'm not even sure. And I don't think he was really an investigator. I mean, they said he was, but... He was an odd person. He was an older man, creepy. But they said he was kind of like a psychic, too. He he would just, like, pick her things up. I remember him picking up the hairbrush. And, I mean, it was like a bad movie. Cousin Patty was also confused about the whole thing. I feel like, why weren't the police there or the... I don't understand why the police weren't there. It was, the whole thing was weird. That night when she got home, she says she had a dream. It was one of those dreams that was so vivid and lifelike that it felt like it was really happening. I was getting up to go to the bathroom and the shower curtain was cracked. And I kind of looked and did a second look and it looked like muddy water in the bathtub. And then I got down on my knees, and Brooke was coming up from the water. And she was grabbing my arms, like she was scratching my arms. And then I just said, who did this to you? And she said, Sean Shirley, his first name and his last name. Sean Shirley, that was Brooke's boyfriend, the guy who she left the note for. They'd been having a fight the night that Brooke disappeared, And apparently, their relationship was a turbulent one. According to cousin Patty, he'd hit Brooke on a few occasions. And there are other accounts that he was violent. 
three days after Brooke went missing, Sean was actually arrested on a separate matter. He was charged with criminal sexual conduct in the third degree. He eventually pled down to lesser charges. The one time that the cousins met him, they didn't get a good feeling from him. So, Cousin Patty's dream, it felt spot on, like it just confirmed her worst fears. In the coming weeks, as Brooke remained missing, rumors began to circulate. One of them was that on the night of her disappearance, Brooke had gone to a party in the mountains, in the dark corner. Aunt Marianne told me that her husband, Patrick, was determined to have a look, check this place out. After all, he was Brooke's uncle, and he felt he should be doing something. Before going, he visited Brooke's parents to see if they might help. Apparently, they didn't want to come. Brooke's daddy said, happy hunting. I mean, this is my family, and I'm about to cry because that that's very odd. <laughs> happy hunting. I can't even imagine not hunting for my children. I talked with Uncle Patrick. He told me that he went up to the dark corner anyway to have a look. Eventually, he found the place where the parties supposedly happened, a cabin back in the woods. A man answered the door. He was shirtless and had nipple piercings. The man said that Brooke was at the beach. Uncle Patrick didn't believe it. He kept searching, but he didn't find her, not even a trace. It would be just one of many dead ends in this case. No one could find Brooke, not her family, or the Traveler's Rest Police, or that creepy psychic investigator. She was gone. It was roughly two years later, two years after Brooke Henson's disappearance, that John Campbell was promoted from patrolman to detective. It was at this point, in 2001, that he became the principal investigator in the case. By then, the case was cold. John says he reviewed the files, but many of the witness statements, which were handwritten, were actually illegible. John spoke with people who had partied with Brooke the night she went missing, but their stories were often convoluted and conflicting. John suspected that Brooke had been murdered, but without a body, it was difficult to build a case. He surmised that her boyfriend, Sean Shirley, played a role in all of this. The Traveler's Rest Police did bring Sean in and interview him, but he was never charged. There's no detailed records of what was said, but apparently Sean offered no useful information. At one point, John thought he almost had the evidence to prove Sean's guilt. It came from an informant who gave him a tip. One guy came to me and said, I saw a confession written by Sean Shirley in a box in a wall behind a brick. That's right. This guy, who knew Sean Shirley, claimed that he'd been in Sean's house poking around when he'd found this note. Here's what the informant told John. I was looking for drugs. I knew he kept his drugs in the basement. I went down there. I pulled the brick out. There was a little box. I opened the box. There was a folded up note in there, and it was basically a confession saying that he killed Brooke. Sound far-fetched? Maybe. And John was never able to get to the bottom of it. The problem was the tip from this informant was cold. The informant had waited too long to tell the police about what he'd seen. 
So when John went before a magistrate to ask for a search warrant, the judge nixed it, said too much time had passed. That's the most frustrating thing in the world to, to think there is a confession in a box in behind a brick in a wall, and I can't get the legal permission to go in there and get it. I mean, does part of you wonder if that's still behind that brick? The house isn't there anymore. <laughs> so the house is burned down, so it's not there anymore. And that's kind of how it went with this case. There were these promising moments, but they never seemed to pan out. There were times when John got these tips that Brooke actually was alive. There were sightings, people who claimed they'd seen her. After all, Brooke's face was on a whole bunch of missing posters. It was always some kind of vague sighting that, you know, I saw her at a phone booth in uh, at the Outer Banks or something like that. You know, <laughs> how do you follow up on something like that? There's nobody there now. But it was just enough to give the family a spark of hope and it would give... Uh, just enough question as to whether or not she was actually dead. And then one day in June of 2006, almost seven years after Brooke Henson had vanished, John got a big break. It was a phone call from a state law enforcement official. He said, I think I found your girl. She's alive. She's in New York. And I said, really? More on that after the break. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible 
to unearth the truth. I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Okay, so it's 2006. John gets his big break, a call, saying Brooke Henson is alive. And the state law enforcement official, the one who called John, here's the deal with him. He was a point of contact in this case, worked for the state of South Carolina, and his name and a phone number was on one of the Brooke Henson missing posters. Someone had seen this poster online and called in a lead, a very promising lead. The caller said that Brooke Henson was now living in New York City, in Manhattan, where she was a student at Columbia University. The caller provided Brooke's home address, an apartment on West 108th Street, and said that the Brooke who lived there had the same date of birth as the Brooke from South Carolina. Not just that, she also looked like the Brooke in the missing poster. John couldn't wrap his head around any of this. It didn't make sense. Brooke Henson had dropped out of high school and vanished in the hills of South Carolina seven years ago. How was she now a student at Columbia University in Manhattan? The only thing that John could think of was that this was some kind of elaborate stunt and that when he tracked down this woman, this Columbia student, she'd explain everything. Eventually, John got in touch with a cop in the NYPD who agreed to help him out, said he would find this Brooke Henson character and see what the deal was. So anyway, the NYPD cop figures out who she is, intercepts her between classes, and um, asks her, who she is, you know, if she's really Brooke Henson. She said, I am Brooke. I am a victim of domestic violence, and um, I'm just hiding out here. And um, I don't want anybody to know. Don't tell my family. So the NYPD cop calls me and says, yep, she's Brooke. You can clear your case. So much of it added up. The name, the date of birth, the general likeness of the photo— even the fact that she was fleeing domestic violence. It was a little hard to fathom, but wasn't it possible that when Brooke Henson walked out the door that night, away from Sean Shirley and her life in Traveler's Rest, that she just kept on going, did what Americans have done from the very beginning, reinvent themselves, defy everyone's expectations, start anew? Sure, says John. That's reasonable enough. He sees how another cop might have accepted this and let it go at that. If it hadn't been me who had been with the police department since 99 and knew the case as well as I knew, if it had been somebody that had just been hired, you know, we had a lot of turnover and everything, someone would said, oh, yeah, we found her. Um, case closed. And honestly, this could have been the end of the story right here. But in a way, John had been waiting his whole life for this moment. Let me explain. You see, John loves mysteries and spy novels, too. The weirder, the better. He's a huge fan of The X-Files, the show starring David Duchovny that tells us the truth is out there. 
John loves stories about aliens, paranormal activity, and vast government conspiracies. And he's looking for them, pretty much always. He told me back in the 1990s, everyone was looking for the Unabomber. You know, the mysterious madman who wrote a manifesto and sent bombs in the mail. John studied the case obsessively, and eventually he became convinced that he had found the Unabomber. He even called the FBI. They didn't take him seriously, and it turns out John was wrong. Then in 1995, a domestic terrorist blew up a federal office building in Oklahoma City. It was huge news. The authorities found their suspect, Timothy McVeigh. John claims that he found an accomplice, tracked him down. Again, he called the FBI. But again, they didn't take him seriously. And to this day, John questions how the FBI handled this. Like, what were they hiding? Look, John is the first to acknowledge that conspiracy theories are seductive, sometimes dangerously so. I've known people who are absolutely consumed by a conspiracy theory, and, and you can look at them and like, that guy's nuts, you know? <laughs> John, some people might think that about you. Yeah, oh, they do. So you get the picture. John was not the type of guy who was gonna walk away from an unsolved mystery. Sure, maybe he'd watched one too many episodes of The X-Files, but something about this Brooke Henson situation in New York City just didn't feel right to him. So he decided that he wanted to create a test to see if this really was Brooke Henson. He consulted with someone in the Henson family and came up with a set of questions that only Brooke would know the answers to. Like, what is your late uncle's name? And what is your brother's best friend's name? He asked the NYPD to contact Brooke and pose these questions. They agreed. A short while later, John says the detective called back and basically said, yep, she answered most of the questions correctly. Seems to be her. So I said, I'm not happy with that. I want DNA. DNA. I mean, you got to hand it to him. That's ballsy. He's a small-town detective from South Carolina. He's got evidence aplenty that this is Brooke Henson. And he's telling the NYPD, nah, I want DNA. Kind of amazingly, the NYPD agrees. I don't fully understand why exactly they did, but they did. The NYPD says they'll reach out to her, try to make arrangements to get some DNA. The woman, Brooke agrees. They set a date. And then she simply vanishes. When she didn't show up to give DNA, she was in the wind. She never went back to the apartment that she was living in. She never showed back up to class. She was gone. And at that point, we had no idea who she was. No idea. And that right there was the thread dangling like an invitation of sorts. But what to do with it? Well, for starters, what was this exactly? A missing persons case? Or was it two missing people? Or was it a case of stolen identity? Or was it a murder case with a mysterious suspect who was now on the run? Impossible to say. As a detective, John knew that these categories were important, but this case didn't fit neatly into any of them. So what was John supposed to do? He didn't work for the FBI or the US Marshals. He was just a small-town detective from the mountains of South Carolina. He says he had a travel budget of about a thousand bucks. 
His official jurisdiction was just a few miles in diameter. This case was way out of the circle of wagons. But that hadn't really stopped him before, had it? I mean, he'd gone after the Unabomber and the Oklahoma City bomber, too. But that he'd done on his own, almost as a hobby. He had a real claim to this one. This was his case, his thread. And damned if he wasn't going to pull on it. Coming up this season on Deep Cover. I said, I'm calling about a girl you might know named Brooke Henson. And he said, I wondered when you were going to call. When my son brought her home, I, I knew she was trouble. Natalie. I knew her as Natalie. She introduced herself as a, as a professional chess player. There are a lot of people stealing names, but something dealing with espionage, spies, that was a fascinating, fascinating development. We were chasing her around the country and, you know, we would look at each other and say, how, how are we not finding this young girl who, good grief, guys, we're the federal government here. We got to be able to do that. I think I got a message from Columbia Security saying they wanted to talk to me. And I was like, oh, shit. Cover is produced by Amy Gaines and Jacob Smith. It's edited by Karen Shakurji. Mastering by Jake Gorski. Our show art was designed by Sean Carney. Original scoring and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra. Fact-checking by Arthur Gompertz. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Jake Halpern. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? 
I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.